0: Isaiah 36 is where we're at. If you're there, if you need a Bible, there's one underneath the seat. There's one built into our app. Either way, Isaiah 36, we're going to start in verse 1. And again, today we will move incredibly quick. In the 14th year, it says in verse 1, of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Here's where we've been if you have not been here in Isaiah. Isaiah. God has been speaking to his people, the nation Judah. He also speaks at times to the nation Israel. They were at one time one nation, an obedient nation to God, as good as human beings can be. They were a nation under God, if you will. And through through the years, and through rebellion away from God, and through pressing into things that they desired that God did not have for them, they became a sinful and corrupt and disobedient people. So much so the nation schismed into a northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Isaiah is in the king in Judah. He is in that place. And so he's been primarily speaking to them. God has been calling them back for generation after generation after generation, hundreds of years of God sending people to call his people back, call them back to repentance, call them to quit worshiping the gods around the other nations, the idols that the other nations worship, the false gods. He's been calling them to return. He's been sending prophet after prophet, speaker after speaker, leader after leader to say, return to me. And when they don't listen, God says, listen, return or I'm going to smash you. I am going to destroy your nation. I will save a remnant to glorify myself, but I will destroy your nation. And they still don't listen. And as God begins to do this, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use Assyria, the big empire around all of you right now, and I'm going to bring them in and they're going to wipe out Judah. And finally, a small remnant, beginning with a king named Hezekiah, who ascends to power in Judah, he begins to try and shift the people back to worshiping God. In the beginning, he is highly unsuccessful and he has his own problems, but eventually, the people begin to shift back to worshiping God. But as Assyria grows as an empire, they begin to destroy the nations around Judah. And now in verse one, here's what happens: Assyria destroys the vast majority of Judah. All that's left now in this nation is Jerusalem, their capital city, if you will. It's like this. It's imagine. That you live somewhere in the center of the country. And in, in, in if you think continentally, imagine you live in like Dallas, Texas. No, that's not because I'm a Cowboys fan. It just makes sense, all right? And imagine the Assyrians or, or somebody, Russian, Chinese, or some unknown country are just coming in and destroying from California and New York and Washington and Florida. And they're just coming in and they wipe out Meridian, Idaho. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> not bitter at all. But all of a sudden, they're breaking in through the borders of Texas, and here they come, and you're sitting in there, and you can hear the armies coming at you. They've destroyed the vast majority of your nation, and they're bearing down on you. This was God's judgment on Judah, and it has now taken place at the hand of the Assyrian Empire, led by a king named Sennacherib. Verse 2, it says this, And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from the... The Rabshakeh is like a royal messenger. Think of like maybe secretary of state or something today. Sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish the king of he- to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joan, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So here comes Sennacherib and his army, and he is sending this, this speaker, the Rabshakeh, he sends him to speak on behalf of this massive army. And just understand, in this era, no matter if you're winning or losing, war is incredibly costly. Not that it isn't today, I'm just saying that war is incredibly costly, life and money and everything else. And so you are, you are sending people out into another nation across many nations And you have to feed them, and you have to put them up out there. And that takes a toll on them as they fight and battle. And so as they get to the final fortified cities, they've destroyed most of Judah. Now what's left is Jerusalem, where their king is, where their officials are. And they're standing outside with an incredibly intimidating army. And they're saying, listen, now, just give up. Just quit. We're here And you're next. We've destroyed everything in our path, everything in your nation, everything in the surrounding nations. We've not missed a beat. And you're next. You're the one we're coming for now. Verse 4, it says this And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? The people of Jerusalem have repented, they've turned from their false idols. They've turned from their worship practices that mix in the worship of the nations around them, their abandonment of God. They've they've turned from all of this. And they've begun to seek God in repentance and worship and prayer. And as this army closes in on them, there they stand, ready to make war against an empire. They're a city. But there they stand, faithfully, probably terrified. Knowing the odds against them are incredible. It's a million to one. And they have no chance of winning this, but they have turned to God and God has promised to be faithful to them. As God has allowed and even foretold the destruction of the rest of their nation, he has told them, I will save a remnant from among you to glorify my name. If you return to me, I will return to you and I will protect you. And there they stand, this tiny city in the grand scheme of what's going on with an Assyrian empire who is the most powerful empire on the planet at this time. And the speaker for that empire, he looks at them and he says, what is it that you trust in right now that makes you think you can put up a fight against us? Why do you stand there thinking we won't destroy you like we destroyed everyone else? So just as a, as a, as a, as a point to tie ourselves in with, consider this note. They've got to be tempted to surrender, right? The people are confronted with something that was far beyond their power and control as the Assyrians prepare to destroy Jerusalem. The city, the people, the army, everybody there, the leadership, the city must choose between trusting in God or abandoning God altogether. This is where they are. This battle means this much. Do we follow God? Do we trust in God or not? Do we believe God can defend us? Do we believe God will defend us? Or do we abandon God and do we just surrender and hope to save our lives? That's the choice that's put before them. Verse 5, it says this. The continues. He says this. Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? He mocks them. I beat every city you own. Why will I not beat you here? You have been depending upon another nation, Egypt, who we've beaten. What makes you think that they will defend you? Are you relying on God? You mean the same God that Hezekiah has gone in and destroyed the altars of. So the Shega is not saying anything that's false. The people who are supposed to be the people of God have done every one of those things. Instead of relying on God, they relied on another nation. They relied on Egypt. They had come in, and they had so defiled their own worship that God made them destroy their own temples and places of worship and called them to worship in a new place, in a new way. They had done all these things. If I'm to look at you and just unfold your past before you and say, listen, this is who you are, and this is who you are, and this is who you are, or if I just tell you this is who I am, and this is what I've done, and this is what I've done, Then we begin to ask the question, why would God rescue me now? Why would God want to save me? Why would God want to save them in this moment when they have been so incredibly unfaithful to God? And to top that off, every other city and every other place of their entire nation has been destroyed by this army. Verse 8, he continues again. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. He is mocking them. Let's bet on this, he says. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it. And the Lord said to me, go up to this land and destroy it. You see, this is an educated man. This is a man who knows what's been going on in Judah. He knows that the prophets have been telling the people of Judah, I'm going to use, that God speaking, I'm going to use Assyria to destroy you. And he says this, listen, I'll make a bet with you. I'll I'll give you 2,000 horses. Do you even have 2,000 soldiers that can sit on those horses? Or have we killed them all? You mean you're trusting in the very God you said is going to use us to destroy you. You feel the weight of where they are? Isn't that how we feel when we come up against things? When there are things that are just so beyond our capacity to handle them, nevertheless beat them, that we feel feel defeated before we even go in. I mean, some feel defeated and some are arrogant enough to think I can do this on my own. So, yes, of course, we have two sinful responses to that. But he is mocking them. And he is saying true things about them. But he is ultimately also mocking God. Verse 11, then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah, the son of O, said to the Rav please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, Within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshega said, He, or has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Here's a graphic line for you. So lunch, what are we doing for lunch? Yeah, right? Here's what they say. Why don't you speak to us in, in why don't you speak to us in your language? Because we understand that. Why don't you not speak to us in our language so that everybody else can hear? And so he says louder in their language. Why? They're going to die with you. Why do you not want them to hear? Do you not trust what their response will be? Do they not trust in the God you trust in? Do they not trust in the king Hezekiah that you trust in? It says, then the rabbi stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So he's speaking this in Hebrew to them. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. The city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Here's what he says, taunting them. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't trust in Hezekiah's God. Why don't you just come out from behind that wall and surrender to me? And then I'll let you eat of your own land until I come and take you away to another land, just like your own land. Which is code word for you surrender and I'm going to enslave you. Why don't you just, why don't you just quit trusting in that God of yours and that king of yours who keeps telling you to trust in God? And everything's gonna be okay. That's one of the lies that we buy into about sin. Here's a note for you. Assyria tells Jerusalem to surrender and promises them safety when ultimately they will take them as slaves. Temptation often comes with a promise of security and satisfaction when ultimately it always leads to misery and slavery. Sin will always lead us to misery and slavery, no matter what it promises on the front end. Sometimes we see that thing that we're willing to trade ourselves for. Well, no, I'm just gonna spend this season of my life working really hard. I know this is gonna cut into my time and my faith. I know it's gonna cut into my time and my family. But at the end of this, I'll have enough to where I can go back and redo all this. But at what cost? Because it always ends in slavery and misery. Whenever we sacrifice that thing, well, just, we can just do this. This will be fulfilling, this will be good. What can it possibly hurt? Well, if sin didn't look that way, we'd never do it, right? If sin didn't look like it would be pleasing or satisfying or something that wouldn't be harmful, then we would never do it. But instead, we buy into that lie and we found ourselves down the road, enslaved and miserable and trapped, and then crying out to God like, hey, what happened? As God continually calls us back. Verse 18 says this, beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Harnath and Arpod? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? For have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He says every nation we've conquered so far has worshipped something. And where is that something now? Where are the idols that Samaria bows down to? Where are the, where are the idols of false gods that are, that they bow down to, that they trusted would save them? And here you are, just another city in a long line of cities saying, our God will save us. Rav says, everything but your God can't save you. Over and over again, your God can't save you. Your God won't save you. Ask the people next door. Their God didn't save them. Just picture yourself in that scene. You're inside the walls of Jerusalem, and there's an army that's encamped outside, surrounding everything around you. And they make everybody in your city look small. And they're just telling you listen, just surrender, don't trust in your God. Don't trust in your king who trusts in God. They're misleading you. We've destroyed everything in our path. Verse 21, but they were silent, and they answered him not a word, for the king's command was do not answer him. The people of Jerusalem remain faithful to God. Against all the odds, the people of Jerusalem remain. They trust in their God They trust in their king who is leading them towards their God. They have repented from their idolatry, from their worship of false things. They have repented from looking like the nations around them. They have begun to return to God and worship God and lay down anything that would stand between them and God. And now as they are confronted with a massive army, like the whatever, how many ever of you are out there, they stand like me, isolated. Numbers great against them. Knowing that if this is what this is, I can't win it. If this is the battle I have to fight, there's no, I have no hope. But somehow God has promised, God will be my victor. God will be my security. Hezekiah is seeking God. We trust in our king. He's led us back to God. We will stay. And so when this guy taunts them, and shouts for them, and mocks them, and says, listen, let's just make a bet. I'll give you 2,000 horses. Do you even have 2,000 soldiers? And they stand there on the walls overlooking the valley, silent, faithful to their God, faithful to their city, faithful to their king, which ultimately isn't about their city or their king. It's about being faithful to their God. Verse 22, it says, Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So they go, these officials of Jerusalem, they go to the king, Hezekiah. And on the way, they have torn their clothes. And that's a way of just showing humility and fasting and just lowering themselves. Instead of big fancy dress, instead of being in their best, they go in torn clothes humbly to their king and tell him, this is what the up Shekha, this is what the messenger of the king of Assyria is saying to us. But we've stood firm. But this is what's going on. Verse, uh, Isaiah 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes. And he covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the other senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. They go into the king, and they say, here's where we are. Here's what's going on outside these walls. Here's what that messenger is saying. And Hezekiah tears at his clothes. He puts on sackcloth. This is a a posture of humility and mourning and fasting before God. He is laying down everything. Imagine a king. When When you picture a king, you picture a crown, you picture a robe, you picture a throne, whatever it is. And he has laid all of that aside and put on the worst This is not about his kingship. This is not about his position. This is about his position before God. And he lowers himself to this place of being utterly dependent. And he goes in, he goes into the temple, into the house of the Lord, into the worship space. Like this, in a place of worship, a place that is just given to worshiping God. And then he sends the other senior priests, and he sends them out to tell Isaiah the prophet the one who has been standing and calling out for God year after year after year after year when they wouldn't even listen, but who has helped guide them back now that Hezekiah is raised up and is leading them back to God. They've sent for the prophet, the faithful one, the one who has been speaking on behalf of God, calling them to repentance, and they send to him, Isaiah, come help us figure this out. Here's what Hezekiah does. He has the most godly response to an overwhelming problem. He he does four incredible things. He humbles himself, he goes into the house of the Lord, he sends for Isaiah, and he admits that his people are too weak to continue without God. He says the people they've come to the place of giving birth, but they have no strength. Like we're we're here, we can't push back at all. Like we're at the end of ourselves. Isaiah, come, help. Verse three, it says this, it may be that the Lord your God, so they send to Isaiah, and these priests say this, it may be that the Lord your God, I love they call him Isaiah's God, will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift him up in your prayer for the remnant that is left. They tell Isaiah, maybe God will hear them Maybe God will hear that man mocking God, and maybe God will come and defend us. Isaiah, pray for us. Verse 5, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid, because the words that you have heard, which were the young men of the king of Assyria, have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So here's what God says. The priests go in and see Isaiah. Isaiah, we're in trouble. Isaiah, pray for us. Isaiah, help us. You've led us back to God. You've led us to this place. We're trusting in God. Hezekiah is, is, is bowed down before God in his worship space. And he is crying out to God and he's asked for your help. Isaiah, come, pray with us, pray for us. Maybe God will hear these people mocking him and he'll show up for us. And Isaiah says, this is what God says to you. Be strong, don't be afraid. God says, I will put a spirit inside that empire king and I will cause him to go back and fight his own people in his own home. I'll take care of him you just be faithful. God makes a new promise to them. Verse 8, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria. So the Rabshakeh leaves, and he goes back to where the king of Assyria is. It says this, and and he returned. He found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, the king of Cush, who has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. In this moment, he is going to give the Rabshakeh something to write down and deliver to Hezekiah. Here's what that letter is going to say right here. Quote, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed? Gozan, Haran, Rizeph, and the people of Eden that were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpah, the king of the city of Seraphim, the king of Hanah, the king of Iva? Here's what this letter that's going back to Hezekiah says. Don't let them deceive you by saying your God will save you. Don't let them do that because I've destroyed everybody and they've all prayed to somebody along the way. You take this letter and you give that to the king. You give that to the king Hezekiah and you tell him his God cannot stop me. No one can stop me. I will destroy Jerusalem. Verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and he spread the letter before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. I want you to hear this. This passage is written primarily, the speaker is the Rabshekah and King, the king of Assyria, two pagan people intent on destroying God's people. And most of these two chapters are written saying, God can't save you, your God won't save you. Where was this guy's God and where was that guy's God? And so we have a unique language. When it talks about my fathers, he's talking about Sennacherib's fathers, the Assyrian fathers, not the fathers of the people of God. So you kind of have to flip it around and listen to it as you're the receiver and and the hearer and, and not as scripture often is the speaker on behalf of God. And then here's Hezekiah. Other than Isaiah, probably the godliest man that the people have, he's their king. He's led them back. He's led them through repentance back to God. And this letter is going to be delivered to him. And it says, listen, last chance. I'm going to destroy you and your God can't stop me. So this letter is delivered to King Hezekiah. and Listen to these words. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah went to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He took this letter, and he goes into the worship space. He goes into the place where people meet with God, where people worship God, where God speaks through their leaders or whatever else. And he takes, and he lays this letter out, and he just falls down in front of this letter, in front of the face of God, and just says, God, here's what they've said there's this weird thing about leadership whether you own a business or you pastor a church it can be incredibly joyful it can also be incredibly hard as we just heard from Pastor Vinny there are seasons where lead pastors just want to step out of ministry for a while to they, they can stop being in that role because it's that hard Imagine King Hezekiah, who is now not just the king, but he is leading his people back to God. He is also pastoring them. And this just landed on his desk. Here's the email he got. I'm going to ruin you. Your God can't stop me. He hit print. He grabs it. He comes in here. He lays it down. And he gets face down before God. This is the most godly response I've seen of almost any person in Scripture, bar none. He takes his problem, and he just lays it down before God alongside himself, and just says, God, this is beyond me. This is all you. It says, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Hezekiah prays. Here's your next note. The king of Judah who has brought the nation back from rebellion towards God now models what godliness under great pressure looks like. Godliness under great pressure is bowed down before God and prayer and worship. What do we do when hope seems lost? Do we rely on ourselves or do we turn wholeheartedly to God? I guess the other question is, do we just give up? Instead of laying down before God, do we just lay down before temptation? Before the battle? Before the sin? Before the failure of the marriage or the failure of our children, do we just give up? Hezekiah goes in. He brings everything that stands between him and life. And he presents it to God and gets face first and prays. Here's Hezekiah's prayer, verse 16. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you were the God, you alone, all the kingdoms of the earth, you made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. They were no gods, but they were the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand. And all the kingdoms of the earth, so that we may know that you alone are the Lord. You're it, God. You created heaven and earth. You made wood and stone and gold. In fact, not sure why, but you made Sennacherib. And you gave breath to his armies. And in fact, you caused them to destroy Judah. God, none of this is outside of your reach. You're God, and there are no other gods. God, he's mocking you. Destroy him. Open your eyes and see us right now. Open your ears and hear him mocking you. God, go out before us. That needs to be the posture of every one of us as we come to faith. As we look at our lives and we look at the mess that we make of things and we look at the emptiness of purpose, and, and the slavery to sin and the places we find ourselves, that needs to be our posture before God. God, I've failed everything I could here. All I do is make a mess of things, God. Here's my life. It's junk. I'm, I've messed it all up, but here it is, God. You're the one that sent Jesus. Jesus, you're the one that entered into human history. You put on flesh and bore the penalty of my sin. I have nothing to contribute. All I have is junk, trash, pain, suffering. That's all I have. Jesus, please take my life. Like you rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, let me raise from this dead life and let me worship you. That should be our posture. And then that should never stop as we begin to follow Jesus. We should never go, good, Jesus gave it to me, put it, gave me his Holy Spirit. Good, we'll take everything back now. Now I can run with a It's this constant laying of it before God. I can't overcome this. I can't fix this. You're God, I'm not. You're the creator, I am creation. Everything else in life is created. As Romans said, sin is when we trade worship of the creator for worship of created things. Paul says it best. Verse 21, then Isaiah, the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Here's what he says. Let's pause there. Because you've prayed to me, now he's going to give the outcome. But I want you to see this. We said we'd do application along the way. So winning in battle is this. Go okay, to the next slide. The battle for Jerusalem was not fought on a battlefield, but in a temple laid out before God in prayer. God will fight for Hezekiah and Jerusalem Our battles are won in prayer when God fights on our behalf. Battles are lost by us when we go it alone or we go it in our strength. The battle for Jerusalem was won laid out on a floor like this. It was not won on a battlefield. We need to see that. We need to know that. Verse 22, it says, This is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. The him meaning Sennacherib. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion is talking about Jerusalem. She wags her head behind you. The daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have mocked and reviled, against whom you have raised your voice and lifted the eyes against the heights, against the Holy One of Israel, by your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, With many chariots I have gone up the heights of the mountain to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars. He's saying, Here's what Sennacherib's been boasting about. His choice of Cypress is to come to the remotest height and its fruitful forest. I dug the well, speaking like Sennacherib, and drank the waters to dry up the sole of my foot of all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? Now God speaking himself. Have you not heard that I determined all of that long ago? I planned from the days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins where their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants in the field, like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, Blighted before it's grown, I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. Here's what God says. I've listened to you boast about your accomplishments long enough. Yeah, I get it. You took over Egypt. Yeah, I get it. You laid waste to this city. Do you not know I said you'd do it before you were born? Do you not know that I ordained that you got to do this? And there you are boasting and mocking me. And God says, and now I will stop you. Verse 29, because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way in which you came. I'm not sure if I would love or be terrified of being the deliverer of that message. (laughs) Right? I get that you're kind of, the guy right now. God just said he's going to put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth. You're screwed. Bye. Right? Like I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. You're through. God is going to ruin you. Verse 30, and this shall be a sign for you this year. You shall eat, the gas, the, what, eat what grows of itself. This is now speaking to the people of Jerusalem. And the second year, what springs from that? And then the third year, sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's what I'm gonna do to Assyria and Sennacherib. And then here's what I'm gonna do for you. We're almost there, we're almost done with this passage, but here's what's happening, everything has now shifted. The Rabshakeh who's boasted, Sennacherib, who's boasted his accomplishments, have now been put in place by the God who created the universe. And now the people that are being oppressed have been told, listen, you're gonna be here next year and the year after and the year after. And you're gonna dig down roots deep and you're gonna be a fruitful nation once again. Verse 33, therefore thus says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, the same shall he return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city and save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Something profound that shifts here, and Isaiah has been doing this the entire time. Isaiah has not only been speaking to the people and speaking to their lives and speaking to them about what is true in their day, but he continually points forward to a Savior, to a Messiah, to Jesus to come. He continually reminds them, we will rescue you today, but it's for a purpose. You, Jerusalem, serve a purpose in the kingdom. From you, from the house of David, will come the Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, when he says this, for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David, he's saying, I'm gonna rescue you because it pleases me to rescue you, but I'm gonna rescue you because I made a promise to David that through him would come the king of kings, that someone would always be on his throne eternally. And I'm gonna keep my word to David, and it pleases me to rescue you. The promise to David is Jesus God promised a Savior, the Son of David, to deliver his people. God's covenant never faltered, but due to their disobedience, many died in Judah and missed seeing the deliverance promised to them. See, there's people all around Jerusalem that have been murdered, that have been lost to war, who don't get to see God's hand. They don't get to see God's work because they were disobedient and unfaithful. Sometimes that's us. When we lose sight of what's going on and we fall away, we miss seeing what God is doing in our midst. And we suffer things we don't need to suffer through. And then God will bring us back along. But sometimes we miss the blessing in being there all along. And that's what happens to the rest of Judah. I'm going to wrap this up with verse, these last couple of verses. But this is probably the most important part. Verse 36. And the angel of the Lord went out. Now, I just want to pause. A lot of times in Scripture, we'll see God send out an angel of the Lord. Right? Someone goes out on behalf of God. Angel means messenger, by the way, in the New Testament, Old Testament. Angel just means messenger. It can be a heavenly being or it can be a human being. An angel, oftentimes a heavenly being. That's okay. That's an angel of the Lord. But this is different. There's the definite article, the word the. This is the angel of the Lord. In a case this is unfamiliar territory, if you haven't been around long, haven't heard this talked about. This is a direct reference to Jesus. Hold that thought. Judges two one, you can see it. Now the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, went up from Gilgal to Baacum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Who's the only person that can say those words? God for sure, right? But it's the angel of the Lord. It's not just God. It's Jesus before Jesus enters into flesh. This is Jesus speaking in Judges. Back in Isaiah, here we are. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Here's what God says. I'm gonna destroy them and preserve Jerusalem because it pleases me and I keep my promise to David my promise to David is that Jesus will come. And the very next verse, we see Jesus come and wipe out 185,000 people without a single shot taken. God's prophecy no arrow will be shot, no shield will be lifted, not a thing happened. Another book of the Bible says they come on with this crazy fever in the middle of the night, and basically they boil themselves, they die of a fever. Jesus wipes them out overnight. Pre-incarnate Christ is the term for that. Jesus, before he puts on flesh and is born of a virgin, comes as a child, lives a sinless life, dies the death you and I deserve, but he didn't. Gets laid in the grave, is resurrected from the grave. It's that Jesus. The same Jesus that has ascended back to heaven now and reigns and rules in our lives. This passage finishes off with this. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Sound like a familiar place? (laughs) And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech and Sherazer, his son, struck him down with a sword. And after they escaped the land of Ararat, Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Just as God said, the king is dead. His army was wiped out without a shot fired as Jesus comes and rescues his people. That's what we need to hear when we struggle. That's what we need to hear when we're embroiled in a battle that is bigger than us, that is greater than us, a battle we can't win. We just need to know that our right posture is bowed down face first before God. Let Jesus fight the fight. Let Jesus fight the battle. And that takes more effort than you might think it does. Because it's so hard not to give in. And it's so hard not to fight on your own. But the posture of the believer is laid down in prayer, allowing Jesus to fight on our behalf. I'll close with this. What is your battle? Where are you struggling in life? What battle are you fighting? What needs to be surrendered to God instead of fighting on your own? The city of Jerusalem versus the Assyrian Empire is an example of the insurmountable odds being overcome by Jesus, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. And yes, this passage prophetically looks forward to the end of time, Where Jesus defeats Satan. Where Jesus reigns is victor and king. Let's pray. God, as we gather this morning, every one of us has battle. Every one of us fights a fight. Sometimes the fight is inside of us. This is the seven today, seven years ago, my best friend took his life. Sometimes the battle's inside, nobody can see it. Sometimes there's a pain so deep people give into it and just take their own lives. Sometimes the battle is in our homes, in our workplace, in our city. Sometimes the battle is overcoming sin that we've given into year after year after year. But whatever the battle is, be it foreign, domestic, internal, external, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, Jesus, we know you are greater, and that you have come, that you are victorious, and that you deliver, that our posture is to be bowed down before you, because you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, and nothing is greater than you. It's in your name we pray.